Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Anne Marie, and joining me on today's episode are Emmett and Rory from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today, we're talking about the return of WeWork founder Adam Newman, Rivian's latest quarter, and we check in with Evelyn Health, a stock that's managed to do well in 2022. And of course, you know the story by now. I want to remind you that we have an extended version of Stock Club that you can listen to exclusively in the My Wall Street app for free. At the end of the show, Rory and Emmett are going to pitch two companies to me that they have their eyes on. I'll pick my favorite, and in the extended episode, you can hear the full discussion we have as we try to figure out if it's a good investment or not. There's a link to the episode in the notes for this show. So if you want to hear the extended elevator pitch, just tap that and head over to the My Wall Street app. Rory and Emmett, welcome to Stock Club. First Stock Club I'm hosting. Very unfortunate today that the intro story is going to have to feature Elon Musk. I know <laughs> our dislike for him, but just just a fun one real quick. Uh, yesterday, he was tweeting about politics, which is always a good thing. And then the last tweet he made for the day was, also, I'm buying Manchester United. You're welcome. And then he disappeared offline for four and a half hours. And Manchester United stock went up by like 7%. Everyone was thrilled. <laughs> Elon Musk making another award-winning acquisition. And then he came back four and a half hours later, and he was like, never mind. I'm not buying it. LOL. So my question to you today is how much lo- how many more Elon Musk stock related tweets will we survive and will he ever be stopped? Well, I mean, as a Man United fan, um, you know, it's it's a jokey time. So yeah. his his, yeah. his jokes come a little, uh, during a time when the club is a bit of a joke. So um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Would it be worse him owning it? I have no idea. <laughs> you could like deploy some robots to to play better than the guys they have at the moment. Yeah, maybe he'd use it as a place to like test the autonomous driving technology. The Teslas would be on the field trying to dodge the players. <laughs> they wouldn't have a tough time. Uh, uh. All right, let's jump in. Our first story today is, of course, about the return of Adam Newman, everybody's favorite, second favorite CEO, probably behind Elon Musk. So Anderson Horowitz, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm that was an early backer of Airbnb, Facebook, and Skype, announced in a blog post this week that it had invested $350 million in Flow, which is a community-driven rental startup founded by Adam Newman. Uh, this values the company at $1 billion, and it hasn't even opened its doors yet. That sounds a bit familiar. Newman is, of course, the controversial founder of WeWork, whose antics were recently immortalized in the Apple TV show We Crashed. Emmett, I'll go to you first. Can you walk us through flow do we have any information on this business or are we just kind of hoping for good vibes like last time Mm, i didn't get to see we crashed or at least i spotted it and kept scrolling i do recall however as will regular listeners to stock club that newman's stint in WeWork came to a conclusion after what i think was pretty despicable behavior that included buying the trademark we the word we and selling it back to his company for six million dollars it included a failed ipo uh, laying off thousands of workers and as it said in the verge we work became more well known for corporate drama rather than its actual business but what does that matter when newman stepped down as ceo in 2019 he made out with 
I think it was $1.7 billion exit package, and he still owns 10% of the company. And as you said, Amory, he's back, and this time with Flow, which aims to provide a consistent housing experience across a chain of branded apartment complexes. And in his post that you referenced, uh, Amory Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, presented the potential to disrupt the residential rental market. So here's what we do know. According to the New York Times, this is Andreessen Harris's biggest investment in a single round. Uh, and that, as you said, has already valued the business at a billion dollars. And critics were very quick to point out that Andreessen's concern over the housing crisis is a little bit disingenuous because it recently revealed that investors, or sorry, that Anderson himself was opposed to uh, proposed new housing units in, in, in their posh neighborhood. So, you know, there's a bigger picture there. But Newman uh, purchased more than 3,000 apartment units in Atlanta, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and Nashville, according to the Times, and is going to offer Flo's branded rental housing experience and services to outside developers. So what I kind of think is quite interesting, interesting is Anderson mentioned workers moving away from in-person office experience with Flow offering a community-style living to accommodate the future workforce. And it's unclear whether Flow will offer a rent-to-own option for residents or what's going to happen there. But I would say that under his leadership, the We brand launched We Live co-living spaces in New York and Virginia back when. And the plans to expand to India and Israel were very quickly shut down. And in 2019, We Live became the subject of an invest- investigation by New York City. So that's about all we know about Flow. I did send to the two of you earlier on Slack a product, a woman, an entrepreneur who has feminine hygiene products called Flow. And the branding is unbelievably similar to. So if you go to Flow, I think Flow's website is flow.live. So uh, Newman's new venture is flow.live. You just got to see the brand. And then if you just Google, and this one went to, I think she took to Twitter or maybe LinkedIn and said, uh, if you offer our products across all of your apartments, I won't litigate. But if, <laughs> but basically <laughs> I have a copyright on this name and the brand is very similar. So I, I admired her, but already he's up against some competition to begin with. I just wanted to say, um, there's a great threat on this by a guy called Safi. Uh, he's a, he's on Twitter. He's a VC at Metaprop NYC, uh, which is a venture capital uh, firm. Uh, he points out in his thread that there's kind of been hints that Newman was going down this road for quite a while. On top of the kind of $1 billion plus of real estate he's bought just to get this thing off the tarmac, he has been investing in a number of kind of um, property technology companies uh, through his family office. So the first was a company called Valon. Valon. Valon is a full service mortgage platform. Its mission is to champion homeowners on their financial journey, starting with mortgage servicing. The other one was a company called Hello Alfred, which is a property management startup, which digitizes the resident experience through paying rent, file maintenance orders and book servicing. And the other one was one called Door C Home which provides agents, buyers and sellers with an open bidding marketplace. So it's kind of mortgage servicing and property management, I suppose. So he's kind of seems to be building this kind of company from scraps of other companies. And now he's, or, well, we don't know if he's going to, I suppose, roll them up in the end, but it does seem to be going down this route of, mm. yeah, like co-living 2.0, basically. It's the, it's the we work of homes with, yeah, I, I, I feel like the, 
the, all the pieces are probably in place there for them to, you know, basically get people in there, maybe do a kind of rent, uh, rent to own system. Um, and kind of just, you know, market it the same way they marketed WeWork, which is like, we look after everything. You don't need to worry. It'll be beautiful and lovely and serviced. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting concept. I mean, if it wasn't him doing it, I think I'd probably be a little bit more interested, even though that's not yeah. really what the headlines have gone with. But you know, it's true. And I think one of the promises made was that it's going in the communities that will be built are a safer place, I think was part of the top line promise. But you really... I don't think maybe technically safer, maybe better security and better technology around security. But when you think about it, uh, if one thing, if the world has learned one thing from the multiple interviews that one needs to do to get into one of the tech giant companies, whether it's an employee of Google or, or Facebook or any of those, or Meta, I should say, uh, is that repeated interviews don't necessarily always screen out all the Looney Tunes. Like some people will still get through and still end up working in giant businesses, despite being interviewed by 10 different people and core competencies and, you know, uh, personality fit and all these things. So I don't really know if there's a co-op approach. Is he thinking that, you know, we all own this together and therefore we all interview the next person coming in? Or is it just, you know, bring your dollars and there's the key of your place. So I don't know how they can kind of lean into a, a safer place to, to live. Yeah, that kind of t- touches on my next question. Something they reiterated a lot throughout Anderson's blog post was this idea of, quote, in a world where limited access to home ownership continues to be a driving force behind inequality and anxiety, giving renters a sense of security, community, and genuine ownership has a transformative power for our society. This idea is pretty vague and kind of typical Newman fashion. But do you think this could be a source of some sort of housing revolution in the United States. Like, is it possible that that could come from Newman or the private sector in general? Or is this maybe a broader question that more people should be involved in? Well, I I do like division uh, more so than we work. That's for sure. I have to admit, um, I am concerned about the fact that Newman is at the helm of the business. But what I did do is I had a look at the World Economic Forum's website and it gave a very interesting insight into a global problem. And it says that a shortage of land, lending, labor and materials um, since the financial crisis in 2008 are the main causes of the US housing shortage. And this has driven up costs and cut the profit margins builders can make. And there, and there's less incentive to build more homes, especially lower priced housing with lower margins. And I dread mentioning it, but COVID-19 is considered to have made the housing crisis worse as buyers and renters looked for more space during lockdowns. Historically, low interest rates in many countries, uh, which make it cheap to borrow money, have fueled this phenomenon. So uh, these guys at the World Economic Forum plotted house price to income ratio around the world. And it's quite an interesting graph. And the least favorable place to live for house price versus income is in first place, as I tilt my head, is Luxembourg, followed by Portugal. And as you go down the, let's say, league table, the US ranks the 14th worst place in the world on that metric. And just for our Irish listeners, um, barometer, if you will, Ireland is number 32. So the 32 worst. So currently the US is the 14th, 14th worst place in the world for house price to income ratio. And the bottom line is house prices globally have risen 
at their fastest rate for 40 years as demand has outstripped supply, obviously enough. So anything to alleviate this is good, I think, anyway. Okay. Um, Anderson kind of, Anderson, as we say, uh, tried to assure the public in his post that uh, Newman has learned from his WeWork experience. Do you think that this is enough reassurance to make you feel confident in him as a leader? No. You are who you <laughs> are. Enough. He is who he is. No way. Okay. What about you, Rory? Um, I mean, I assume they're going to be keeping a bit of a tighter rein on him <laughs> with this investment. Like, I can't imagine this is going to be carte blanche like it was at WeWork. That would, mm. that would not be um, advisable. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't but know I mean, what type of person? I don't know whether Sorry, Roy, he's but- learned anything or whether we've, we, the general <laughs> public, have learned, you know, or, or that the, his investors have learned. I would hope they've at least learned their lesson. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, you know, you are who you are. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you, what type of person would knowingly acquire an asset, in his case, we, and sell it back to a company for six, that he founded for six million that was paying him like an absolute king's ransom for a salary? It just, to me, uh, says greed and that fabric is in there so is that gone no it's not that's it i wouldn't touch it frankly i wouldn't touch it all right so it's a not a great appraisal of uh flow but we'll move on from here um last week rivian which is a company we like to talk about and check in with in the ev space reported its second quarter earnings which included a widening losses but good news on the revenue and production side of things emmett i'll hand this back over to you again you were tasked with diving into its earnings reports can you give us a quick overview of the good and the bad Yeah, well, Rivian is an electric vehicle manufacturer on a mission to keep the world adventurous forever. And my first touch point with Rivian was courtesy of Apple TV's show Long Way Up, which was one of my favorite shows in recent years. It it completely tapped into the things that excite me. It was beautiful scenery and camaraderie and friendship and adventure. It really was a lovely thing. As it happens in the show, we get a sneak peek into the Rivian factory in the very early days, which uh, was completely empty. It was quite entertaining because the the crew go to the Rivian factory and the doors swing open. It's just like an an airplane hangar, completely empty. Um, so the, the protagonists uh, are, are their team rather in the show were driving a very early prototype and before I dive into the numbers did either of you see Long Way Up um, if so did you, what did you think did you like the look of the Rivian EV no unfortunately I've only seen the one where they go around oh <laughs> I haven't seen the one where they go up yet oh there were burning fossil fuels in that one yeah alright oh, okay no. um I have seen, I have not seen that show, but I have seen a walkthrough of the Rivian truck. And I remember thinking mm-hmm. it had some kind of cool stuff. Like it had that secret compartment uh, mm-hmm. behind the passenger seats th- that you can, um, that's like fully waterproof and has electric outlets in it. I thought that was quite smart. It seems to, all their cars seem to have been built with the idea that you will go camping every weekend. And I think yeah, that's, that's very, right. that's very presumptuous for most people. I don't think they can commit <laughs> to that much outdoor adventuring. Yeah, I think it's a very nice looking yoke, to be honest. But so on Thursday of last week, um, Rivian maintained its full year guidance uh, for deliveries and reported that second quarter revenue was slightly higher than what Wall uh, Street had expected. However, it trimmed 
its full year financial outlook, saying that investors should now expect a wider loss and lower capital expenditure than it had previously forecast. So the key numbers were revenue came in at $364 million versus $337 million expected. And the adjusted loss per share was a book 62 versus an expected adjusted loss of $1.63. So it pretty much hit the target there. Uh, a net loss for the quarter was one7 billion dollars and the company had at the end of the period 15.5 billion in cash and equivalents uh, i think their period closed june 30th of course so it's q2 which was down from 17 billion at the end of march the end of q1 and they said that they were confident that the cash is enough to fund operations until it launches an upcoming smaller product platform called the R2 uh, at a new factory they're building in Georgia. Or I think it's open actually, and, and that's in 2025. And they also said that they had about 98,000 uh, pre-orders for um, the R1 um, and SUV is as at the end of June. What else can I tell you? The company also confirmed it still expects to make about 25,000 vehicles in 2022. I mean, that's not very many in line with the reduced guidance it, it announced back in March. But it said that it now expects its full year adjusted loss uh, before income tax depreciation and amortization, I don't know why they still do that, to come uh, in at about $5.4 billion, which is even wider than the four and three quarter uh, billion dollar loss on the same basis that it guided in May. It said it expects $2 billion in capital expenditures for the full year, down from about $2.6 billion in May. Uh, all of this say is that the business is really still finding its feet. It also said in July, just for uh, as a point of interest, that it had delivered 4,467 vehicles during the second quarter. So we're not talking a business at scale yet. And that's why we, most people, most of our listeners will not have seen a Rivian on the roads yet. Mm-hmm. Rivian's loss was uh, quite a bit more than analysts were expecting. How much of this can be chalked up to the difficulty of scaling an automaker, which we've spoken about at length in previous episodes? And how much do you think we can place on inflation? Yeah, they said in their shareholder letter that the guidance revisions reflect current estimates of impacts from delayed production ramp, high raw material cost and freight expenses and continuing supply chain challenges. So they kind of, it's a bit of everything. It's like an Irish stew. There's just like all the problems are there. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah, no, but maybe. So yeah, the inflation is in there. It's part of it's part of the Irish stew of problems. Uh, on that, actually, Rivian has been in the news recently for suddenly increasing the price of its SUV and truck by 20%, which sent its stock tumbling. Uh, the public outcry was actually so dramatic that CEO RJ Scaringe had to issue a public apology and the company walked back its price increases. Um However, it's around the same time Ford managed to increase its EV prices and it kind of got away with it. There didn't seem to be any kind of public news. Would you worry if Rivian can't find a way to raise prices, they will suffer even greater losses in the future as inflation continues to sit in? I think there's a few factors that are going on here behind the scenes. Uh, Not likely to benefit from tax incentives in the new energy and climate bill passed by the US Senate. But on the other hand, the business could qualify for subsidies of up to $40,000 per vehicle for larger electric commercial vans, similar to the ones you know they did for Amazon. So I imagine what's happening in, in Rivian is that they're still finding the sweet spot 
for their unit economics. And um, and added to that is the price elasticity of trucks. I presume the average buyer of a Rivian SUV is driven by the usual mix of practical and emotional stuff. But I think a truck driver is probably more attuned to cost versus substitute products. Uh, and I expect the cost is a key driver of decision. And and just before we went live, Anne-Marie, you, you were, we were chatting about a podcast we did, God, it must have been a year ago, where you were explaining the huge tax benefits in buying one of these, what did it call the Ford human the, crusher the giant yokes <laughs> the tesla model x has huge tax incentives if you can write it off as being a business vehicle and because it weighs so much even though it's not a massive truck it qual it, it's weighs enough to be a business vehicle so you can get a huge tax write-off it's like 20 or twenty five thousand dollars, and so it meant that like orthodontists and dentists buy them and write them off and say oh yeah this is my work vehicle yeah delivering a retainer in a, like a five ton mega truck it's like <laughs> <laughs> pulling up your driveway your retainer's here do you like my new truck it cost me nothing um yeah so i think that's what rivian are, are up against it's it's an interesting time i think because the world is toggling over from fossil fuel driven vehicles to electric vehicles and we're trying to find we the buying public are trying to find the the maximum impact uh, for our buying dollar and then there's all those other consideration points you have when you go to buy a car or a truck come onto the table as well as Rivian is a is a new player in the auto industry, do you think these kind of negative pu- moments of public attention could impact its ability to attract first time buyers? I don't think it's great if the first time someone hears about your new car brand is because you raised prices all of a sudden and remember the massive public outcry. Mm, I do, yeah. I mean, would you believe there's about fifty car brands for sale? In the United States, there's 50 different manufacturers that go from obviously high-end luxury right through to entry-level diesel with barely a backseat. And the success factors for Rivian, I suspect, are desirability, form, function, reliability, uh, price, as we said, sales showrooms, so distribution, post-sales, service, resale value, uh, whatever else. There's there's multiple success factors in the in becoming a successful seller of vehicles. I happen to think they are geared for success, and it's not surprising to find that the first couple of years of production are rocky, um, that nothing is certain, prices is, is moving, and they're, they're learning their own business. But it is a huge... Uh, I suppose, commercial BHAG to actually launch something up against, in the knowledge that Tesla have a couple of year lead on you and that Ford has a pedigree that goes back, I don't know, 100 years. So yeah, I think that Rivian is actually positioned to succeed. Okay. Maybe on that uncertain future with Tesla bringing out that monstrous Cybertruck that looks like a Transformer and Ford releasing the F-150 Lightning, which has had, they've actually had to close pre-orders for that truck. They've had so many of them, Uh, not to mention all these other legacy players are fighting to get into the space. Do you think there is enough room in the EV market for Rivian to be successful and and make itself into one of these legacy automakers in the next 10 to 20 years? Hmm. I think so. Yeah, I do. I think so. They do have an early mover advantage in the electrical truck space. And I know that there's competitors, there will always be competitors. Um, uh, Is there enough room for another one? I think so, because of the fact that they're differentiating 
in the manner in which we've discussed. And uh, they, they, I think the tax incentive thing is is quite a big one. I'm not uh, au fait enough with American tax laws. It sounds from what you just said, Amory, they really should just make their trucks heavier so you can get them for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the issue is they're actually phasing out those tax laws and the new ones that come in will, uh, will not benefit Rivian, unfortunately, uh, because they don't manufacture their batteries in the U.S. That's, that's the kind oh. that's going to get them. Yeah. Mm. I feel like there's, I mean, it's, there's so many kind of car companies starting up now. I mean, here's when, when Tesla went public in, I think it was 2010, you'd probably know better. Um, and they were the first car, first American car company to go public since Ford. Wow. Who had done so in 1956. If you just look at the flurry of new cars that have gone public, mostly through SPAC, it must be said. Hmm. It it just seems like there's a huge there, there was obviously a huge amount of interest and hype surrounding the the industry and we've had you know Rivian Lucid. Neo Lucid uh, Nicola the one well is was that a car company if it didn't actually drive I don't know um, it just seems to be I, I don't know is this one of those it seems like one of those cases where these companies are being driven public just by public interest rather than you know, the fact that the the world needs this brand out there. Um, I think that's, I think trying to figure out the ones that are going to survive is going to be tricky. Rivian did seem like probably the most, I don't know, the, the one with the most kind of potential there. Mm, yeah, yeah the I agree. It seemed to be putting kind of just like electric motors into whatever cardboard box they could find. That's in right. the yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a certain premium German car manufacturer whose name I'll hold back. Actually, no, I won't. It's BMW. And I went in <laughs> and uh, they, I wanted to see their new electric offering. And the problems I experienced as a buyer, there was nothing to attract me to BMW. And I'll, I'll explain why. The first problem was that they their new fully electric three series isn't fully hasn't been unveiled yet or at least when i was in a couple of weeks ago it wasn't unveiled then so it still isn't available to look at and i was told by the very nice guy on the floor that it was going to be at least a year and a half before i'd get a delivery from one if i paid for the whole thing right now so this for me was just really ridiculous so there's a renaissance i think for other car manufacturers like here in ireland i've noticed that there's a whole pile of electric kias around here that look really cool they they're very aesthetically pleasing i think they're very futuristic looking but not over the top um and they're fully electric it's a brand that barely existed in my psyche you know up till a year ago but it seems that there is now an opportunity for the other brands to capitalize on the supply chain weaknesses if you like that other companies are experiencing i think actually bmw get components from um from ukraine which could uh, be a very significant delay factor for them but yeah in essence i think that there's there's been the, the the market appears to be shifting and brands that once upon a time are perceived as premium are slipping and another ones that were perceived as edge are going into mainstream so it's quite an interesting time i think for automotive in general it's interesting you say that because i think kia is rumored to have been having discussions with apple and they think Apple might be designing the digital infrastructure to create the Apple car, but Kia will be doing the hardware. Was that not a Hyundai? Oh. Yeah, because Hyundai. I think if, if I recall the CEO of 
the car manufacturer in question, whether it was Hyundai or Kia, came out and made an announcement and had to unsay it very quickly. Now, we're talking about two or three years ago where Apple said that is not the case. And um, it went all went very quiet after that. So I uh, now maybe that's new news, Anne-Marie. There was some rumor that they were planning on like Apple was building this um, operating system for a car where you could like adjust your seat and like the temperature of the car and like the the driver's mirror all with your iPhone. And I was like, stick to the buybacks, lads, please. That is totally unnecessary garbage. I'm shocked that you went to go see the BMW after they announced that they were making their heated seats a subscription service. Did you see that? You have to pay like $18 a month if you want your seats to be heated. But by next year, you have to pay a subscription service to use the brakes. Like, they're going to get you somehow. All right. Now, before we jump into mailbag here, we have to do a quick My Wall Street promo before we force Rory to speak again. So uh, don't forget that if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of the episode. It's completely free to listen to episodes of Stock Club on the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is download the My Wall Street app on iOS or Android and create a My Wall Street account. There's a link in the notes for today's show. So just tap and enjoy more Stock Club. All right, on to mailbag. Well done, Anne-Marie. That, God, you went into that with such reluctance. It usually <laughs> yeah. takes James oh, like Now I have to do a Wall times. Street promo. It's real sorry. That's just yeah. terrible. No. She got it in one, though. <laughs> yeah. In fairness, one right take, through. Kingsland. One yeah. take. One Sir, take. I'm, I'm well-practiced for FML. Every second sentence out of our mouth is, please download our app. So, you know, we're, we're, no, we're, I know we're that. trying to layer it in. Um so for the mailbag today, we actually have a bit of a joyous question, which is nice. You know, the market's been in the toilet last year. So, you know, you, you want to remind yourself that some things are positive. Um, we had a few questions in concerning Evelyn Health. Evelyn is a rare stock in 2022 in that it's performing quite well. It's up 46% so far this year. Happy days. Rory, I'll hand this over to you. What is Evelyn doing right? Yeah, Evelyn's one of the few bright spots we've seen over the past few months, which is kind of upsetting. It's probably the least followed of her stocks yeah. by far. It's such a, it's a, it's a small, like very uh, loosely uh, or um, thinly followed company. Um, but as I just said, it's up around 46% year to date. And if we pull back a little bit further, you know, they, they had some trouble back, uh, in kind of 2019, 2020, um, from, from the lows they hit back then, it's up about 8x. Um, so it's, it's definitely on an upward trajectory over the last couple of years. For those who aren't familiar with the company, it's, um, it calls itself a value based healthcare provider. Essentially what it does, it, it develops technology to help health plans providers cut costs while improving outcomes for patients. So it's a, it's a rarity in, in that it's also a kind of healthcare company, which we don't typically cover that many of. Um, uh, in a nutshell, what they're kind of trying to do is they're basically trying to harvest patient data to identify where kind of preventative healthcare could come in with individual patients. Um, and that kind of reduces cost to payers over the long term. If anyone's actually interested in reading more about that model, there's a, a great long read in um, the Harvard Business Review, um, dating back from about 2013, I think it was called The Strategy That Will Fix Healthcare. Um, Evelyn was kind of one of the kind of pioneers of this uh, approach. They went public in 2015. Um, it was then, and I suppose it still is now, kind of quite a high risk investment. You know, it's kind of it's a pretty novel approach. It's not been well tested over time. Um, and it's a company out there trying to bring kind of a big change to what is a pretty hectic and, and highly regulated industry. 
Um, and with that in mind, you know, since going public, it's, it's certainly been a bit of a roller coaster stock. Um, it took, like I said, it took a big hit a couple of years ago when essentially they bailed out one of their biggest customers. Uh, the t- shareholders weren't too happy with that. Um, so that, I mean, that's kind of taken quite a while to iron out. And, uh, I suppose over the last couple of years, they've really been on a mission, um, to kind of divest themselves of, underperforming assets or, you know, investments like that, that were kind of muddying the waters around this business. Uh, and when businesses go about that kind of restructuring, you know, it's, it's going to play a bit of havoc with your accounting. Um, you know, how you measure things on a gap basis versus what's actually happening in the core business itself. Uh, but you know, in terms of revenue, uh, it's been very positive. They've, you know, the company's remaining segments are performing very well. Uh, in the last quarter, which was just about two weeks ago, um, their clinical solutions segment, which brings in about 70% of their overall revenue, that grew 55% year over year. And uh, their smaller segment, which is called Evelyn's Health Services, that, uh, that grew 23%. Um, the company announced that they had agreed 10 new operating partnerships already this year. So we're only halfway through the year. That's way higher than their annual goal was of six to eight per year. So it's the second year in the, in a row. They've, they've beat their own targets. And um, there's now 22 million lives on their platform, which is one of their key metrics. Uh, and, you know, they've greatly increased their guidance for the year. Um, they went from a midpoint of around 1.18 billion to 1.34 billion. Uh, and they've also just closed on a bolt acquisition, which strangely doesn't seem like they've paid over the odds for. This is one of those uh, industries where you're usually looking at acquisitions going, oh my God, what are you doing? Um, but no, it's the, the valuation is pretty much in line with the company itself. And it looks like it's going to be a, a neat little acquisition for them. Um, so yeah, it's all kind of very positive on the top line for this business. It gets a little more complex the further down you go. Um, the company says they'll, they believe they'll generate a uh, hundred million in adjusted EBITDA this year. Um, the operative word there being adjusted, uh, you know, sometimes when, when companies kind of adjust these uh, these metrics, these small little discrepancies, um, there's big, big caps here in this in this company's uh, what we call their gap figures versus their adjusted figures, which is down to kind of what I've been what I said before. You know, they've gone through a big transitional period over the last few years. There's a lot of money being moved around to kind of pay fees related to all that restructuring. There was severance pay needed paid there was stock-based compensation fees there was legal fees so i mean it's that's all kind of clouding the path to profitability um and how long that path is going to take and what kind of margin profit we can expect when this all gets straightened out is is a little bit uh opaque um there's also a little bit of debt on the balance sheet that they're going to have to manage down i mean having said that though you know there's there's plenty of positives in this business they're they're growing fast there's no real signs of a slowdown, certainly not kind of hitting any ceilings in terms of where they can go from here. Um, management seems to kind of have a clear strategy, uh, kind of revolving around kind of organic growth and improving that margin profile. And for the moment, they seem to be kind of delivering on that. Um, like I said, it's still, I'd say, a very high risk investment. You know, this is a tough industry to try new things in. There's an awful lot of competition out there. Um and you have to deal with the constant regulatory uh, headaches uh, that come from operating in, in healthcare. Uh, however, there have been a lot of acquisitions in this sector just over the last few months. Uh, you know, we saw Amazon with One Medical. We saw uh, CVS is, is interested in buying Signify, I believe, is, is the business. Um, and there were some rumors floating around a while back that this could be an acquisition target for Walgreens. Uh, and it's saying that you should never buy uh, a stock based on acquisition rumors. 
But, you know, if those reports are right, there's probably some downside protection in this business. So it's, you know, it's even though it's been around for a long time, it's still it's still one of those very new businesses that that uh, that has a lot of risk attached to it. But um, yeah, it's it's nice to see it back on the, back on the positive swing. It's always good to see a bit of a relief for the year. <laughs> mm. All right. It was one of those stocks. Sorry, Anne-Marie. It was one of those stocks. I remember when you pitched it originally, Rory. It was one of those ones where you're trying really hard to stay, like you're concentrating really hard and then you're dreaming of, you know, whatever you're going to have for dinner. It's really hard to stay focused there, Rory, but I did it. I listened to you <laughs> all the way to the end. So I want to tell you something. Well done. That was a good one. <laughs> it was. It's one of those businesses that, you know, no matter how interested you're in, it's going to be very hard to validate that interest because no one is going to listen to you. They're all just going to Rory, do doctors I'm hate it? Bored. Do doctors go, oh, hold on a minute. I'm only getting paid if they survive. <laughs> it's not quite that simple, but it's it's kind of leaning more in that direction than the kind of pay for fees for every service. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I know it's certainly a business I've been dancing around having to update the comment for, for the last two years. So <laughs> maybe I'll update it this week. Having done that. Uh. <laughs> I'm always like, mm, no, I think uh, home Depot needs to be updated again. <laughs> okay. Hey, Emily, you're going to be so happy when you hear the, the stock I'm going to pitch in a few minutes. It's it? so boring. I actually cool. can't, I don't even know if I'm going to make it. So we won't put okay. it in the app because we wouldn't dare put that on anyone's half to update. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of pitching stocks, let's move on to the elevator pitch. Um, what company is on your guys' watch list at the moment? Rory, we will start with you. Um, yeah, so I'm going to continue on my journey of revisiting stocks that I've originally looked back at in 2021, you know, when companies were still going public. <laughs> There's still money out there. Uh, this week I'm taking a look at, it's a really popular one with our users actually, I get asked about it a lot. It's Coupang, um, e-commerce business, often called the Amazon of South Korea. It went public in March last year, I think, yeah, um, and has been the case with pretty much every company that did that shares have taken a serious beating. It's I mean, basically never recovered from its first day of trading. Um, at one point, I think it was down 78%. It's now, it's now kind of pulled back up a bit, uh, down still over 63% from its highs. Um, however, it just posted pretty upbeat earnings last week. Uh, they brought in a 75 in percent increase in their total gross profit. Uh, that was that included some margin expansion, which is exactly what we we're looking for. Um, it also had a nice kind of modest boost in active customers, and they've increased their EBITDA guidance for the year. So um, Wall Street was pretty happy with them last week. So I'm taking another look at them. Nice. All right, Emmett, over to you. Let's bring it home with a nice sleeper stock. Well, how about DACO, I don't even know how to pronounce it, D-A-Q-O, DACO New Energy Corp. DQ is its ticker, which makes polysilicon for photovoltaic manufacturers in China. I mean, I hate being obvious. It's like, hey, I'm at pitch stock and I'm go, mm, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, DACO, which one will I go with? But anyway, wait till you hear this. P ratio, one. Profit margin, 45.5%. You like operating wow. margin, 67%. Return on equity, I'm glad you're seated, folks, 60%. 8.5% held by insiders. And hold on, wait, there's more. The peg ratio, five-year expected, is 0.17%. This thing is so capital efficient, I don't even know... 
it mightn't even exist. But the only red flag I can find about Daco, <laughs> uh, apart from not being able to pronounce it, um, is that it might all be phony because I can't even open, <laughs> I can't even open dqsolar.com without my browser having a fit and saying, stop, do you know what you're doing? And not allowing me. So I tried to, uh, to actually look at their uh, photovoltaic, or no, so polysilicon stuff. But I was like, no, the numbers speak for themselves. I don't even need to see it. Don't care if it exists or not. With a 60% return on equity, this is adequately boring for Anne-Marie to hopefully choose Rory, because if I have to go deeper on this, honestly, it's going to be the worst deep dive ever. And what do they do? Did you find this stuff through Joel Greenblatt's <laughs> magic formula thing again? Um, how did I find Daco? Uh, was there an insider purchase flagged to me by the insider bot? Yeah, because you were tweeting at the insider bot earlier. So I assume that's what you're doing. No. He can't respond to you, Emily. He's only a bot. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's an ad no, no it wasn't, reply um, email. <laughs> that wasn't, that wasn't the, the one I was tweeting to, Anne-Marie. Was it not? Was it a different one? It was a different one. I was okay. talking to the robot about another stock. It's the last person left who'll talk to me, apart from you guys. But um, <laughs> yeah, Daco. So uh, what did they do, Emery? I told you they do polysilicon for photovoltaic manufacturers in China. Uh, we don't, and um, we didn't. We didn't take that that deep dive any step further. We said that's enough. Well, you know, I kind of I couldn't go any further. The, the internet browser said you can't look. You're not allowed to go away. This is not good stuff. All right, fair enough. Well, I guess in that case, we have to go with Rory because you, you just revealed <laughs> that you don't know any other information. <laughs> That's a, a very good strategy to get out of doing a deep dive. <laughs> yeah, well, it is actually. That was very, but all the numbers I gave are true. And um, I don't really think it's a phony business. I think that the the browser just, I don't know, don't know why I wasn't allowed to look at com. All right. Well, that'll be my strategy for next week. I'll come in and say I'm pitching BP and then just n- not speak again. Well, that would be the solution. Anne-Marie, come on. You'll, be, you'll, be, you'll even go better than Steinway or, and BarkBox last week. I was ringing people, go and listen to this woman. She's a machine. Wait till you hear her go. I actually, I did. I, first time I was texting people around, go and listen to her talk about BarkBox. This, honestly, I know this person. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's quite easy when you're talking about dog toys. I mean, uh, it, <laughs> you lost me a bit there with the with the solar or whatever. All right. The photo, uh, yeah. Yeah, the photo, to know. Polysilicon. Anyway. Come on, Anne-Marie. Get, get down oh, with polysilicon, guys. All right. So we'll go with Rory for the elevator pitch. So guys, if you're listening to the free version of Stock Club, this is where we'll leave you today. If you want to find out more about Coupang and what we think of it as a potential investment, jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of our conversation on the company. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. 
What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 